0: I'm most surprised and grateful for this undeserved acknowledgement and opportunity. My mind goes back to April of 1982 when as a fairly recently ordained priest, I had been summoned to the bishop's office, not knowing why, sitting down and being invited by the bishop to do graduate studies in canon law in Rome. After the Second Vatican Council, bishops do not order, they invite you but God help you if you don't accept the invitation. Needless to say, I accepted the invitation. And shortly after arriving in Rome, I was chided and warned by other priest graduate students about the murky discipline I was about to undertake, the dark side of the good news. This made me even more excited to gallop over to the Gregorian University to listen to scintillating lectures in the Latin language about such provocative topics as general norms. I must confess to you that while undertaking these studies, I underwent a conversion. Timing is everything. And I had the wonderful opportunity of being immersed in canonical studies when the 1983 code was promulgated and attending the ceremony in the Vatican, in the Hall of Benedictions, when Pope John Paul II presented to the church the new code where he stated, from the intimate reality of the church from this diversity of members and functions spring the rights and duties belonging to individual persons or to groups within the church. He has been careful to regulate by issuing laws and precepts according to the needs and requirements of time and place. In the Apostolic Constitution promulgating the Code, Sacrae Disciplinae Leges, the Pope had said among the elements which characterize the true and genuine image of the church, we should emphasize especially the following. All the members of the people of God, in the way suited to each of them, participate in the threefold priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ, to which doctrine is also linked that which concerns the duties and rights of the faithful and particularly the laity. One of the contributions of our law that has been most attractive to me is this elaboration of the rights of the people of God. As Pope John Paul once stated, as the Church's self-awareness has developed, the human Christian person has found not only the recognition, but also, and above all, an explicit, active, and balanced defense of personal basic rights in harmony with those of the ecclesiastical Community. This too is a duty the church cannot renounce. One of the key ministries of the canonist is advocacy, assisting a person who needs legal representation in a variety of fora. The canonist can help the wider community by its own discipline, by an affirmation of those he or she is called to represent, as a person endowed, as Pope John Paul II says, with universal inviolable and inalienable rights and invested with a transcendent dignity. It became more and more clear to me that there is a place for the canonists in today's church, an extremely important one. In 1983, our society adopted a code of responsibility, later revised and approved at the 45th Annual Convention. It states that, quote, the canonist is marked by a zeal for justice in the church, aware that while each individual must sacrifice for the common good, true communion is advanced only when the dignity and fundamental rights of each person are held to be inviolable. The canonist takes as a solemn obligation fidelity to the cause of justice and to the competent fulfillment of one's office, even in the face of misunderstanding or opposition. Our code goes on to state, in order that members of the church may be aware of their rights and duties, the canonist has a responsibility to educate and to advise the members of the church as to the substance and procedures of church law. In order to advance the protection of human and ecclesial rights in the church, the canonist has a responsibility to assist in and to support the improvement and development of church law and procedure. Hearing the needs and concerns of the Christian faithful, especially within the local church, wherein they live and minister, canonists bring their particular expertise as skilled servants in the articulation and protection of the rights of all. That, again, is taken from our code of responsibility. We know that not all of these rights are of the same origin, nor are they on the same level the Church has continued to express and clearly specify the claims of human dignity. The teaching of various popes in the last two centuries has contributed to a developing canonical awareness of the rights of individuals that the legal apparatus of the Church must foster and protect. Some of these rights, we know, have been specifically included in the Code, including the right to privacy and to protection of one's good name, Canon 220. It has become quite clear these last few years that the canonist is required to make sure that the work of justice becomes part of his or her ministry. This affects many of the issues that emerge nowadays in the typical diocese. These include, besides incidents of alleged sexual abuse by clerics and employees, other issues related to diocesan and parish employment and just remuneration. As well as a variety of other potential employment matters that can be generated within diocesan bureaucracies, including lapses in ethical business practices. Sensitivity in all these matters is required since we have seen how strong civil sanctions can be applied against the church when human rights violations are detected. The church, as a teacher in the area of human rights, will be judged by its own practice. We stand proverbially on the shoulders of giants. Two years ago, I had the wonderful opportunity to take a six-month sabbatical. And during that time at the University of Notre Dame, took the opportunity to learn of canonists in the 19th century, who worked in the area of the protection of rights. Among many, I came to especially admire Father Eugene O'Callaghan, a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland, who in the 1860s, in a series of articles in the National Catholic Newspaper, the Freeman's Journal, wrote pointed articles under the pseudonym USE about issues related to priests of the United States and perceived injustices, including tenure for pastors, suspension without due process, and a lack of subsidiarity. According to O'Callaghan, at the center of the disciplinary and subsequent morale problems that plagued the clergy was the inability or unwillingness of the leadership of the U.S. Church to use canon law. He fought to have the church in the United States no longer with a missionary status so that pastors would be named instead of rectors. And with the title of pastor, priest should then be considered irremovable, making his removable impossible, his removal impossible unless for specified causes. And then not at the nod of the bishop, but after a fair and impartial trial by the issue of which the bishop himself is as much obligated as the priest. That was from the Freeman's Journal of 1869. I also had the opportunity of meeting, through his writings and some additional research, Richard Brutzell, a priest of the Archdiocese of New York who fought many battles with his archbishop and other bishops, including my own bishop in Rochester, very uh, early in the uh, 19th century, late 18th century, excuse me, 19th century, 20th century. Uh, about the rights of clergy in the United States. He wrote a very popular treatise, The Canonical Status of Priests of the United States, in 1887, in which he thoroughly outlined the canonical issues facing the church in America and proposed his solution. He wrote in his preface, Hence the clergy will derive real profit from the knowledge of the safeguards of law with which their position is protected by the legislation of legitimate ecclesiastical authority. The laity will have more confidence in their clergy when they realize that their positions are not acquired or retained by worldly methods, but that the laws of the church are directed constantly to promote real merits and to guard the meritorious of in their rights. He further wrote, "No one should ever be condemned unheard. Natural equity and justice which bind the highest ecclesiastical no less than the highest civil rulers require that everyone shall have a chance to." exculpate himself, if accused, before any sentence of condemnation be passed upon him. The church has always thoroughly recognized this principle, and no heed, need in conscience be ever given to any action that is at variance with it. In a matter of such vital importance, the church has always laid stress upon the substantial observance of certain forms at any trials, and doubly so where there is a question of inflicting serious chastisement on anyone for alleged delinquency. It must be properly proved that the alleged action be really a delinquency in the eyes of the law, and then that the accused deliberately and with malice did what has been proved to be a delinquency and is directly charged against him. His explanations are to be heard before a sentence is passed. He has invariably a right to the aid of counsel to defend him. Any judge who in a trial should oppose the right of an accused to the aid of counsel shows that he is wanting in the first principle of justice. That again is taken from the canonical status of priest in the United States by Richard Purcell. We don't have to go back to the 19th century to see giants of our profession who have struggled to protect the rights of the Christian faithful. The recipient of the 1996 Roll of Law Award, Monsignor Bill Vavaro, stated in his acceptance speech, in more recent years, I have come to see the real need for advocacy to provide information, support, and counsel to those who are either ignorant of the law or are seemingly being crushed by it. Always go straight ahead, and when you come to some obstacle in the road, ask someone to help. I think the times we live in today still demand that we proceed straight ahead. As canonists, we have a tremendous responsibility to our church for the future. The Code of 1983 is a guide for bringing our church into the thought and mind of Vatican II. There's still much to do, and in a special sense, it is the task of the canonists to be strong in our commitment to make Vatican II come alive in our own times. Again, that was Monsignor Barbaro at the uh, 58th convention, 1996. I am very happy and privileged to be a member of a society which has committed itself to the ecclesial community in such a profound way. The church, the people of God is a community of persons bound together by faith, hope, and charity, equal in dignity and freedom for whom the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love can be illusory without justice, and justice cruel without love, the members of this pilgrim people commit themselves to constant growth in communion through love and justice. Thus, canonists, like the law they are skilled in, serve a limited but important function in the church to foster and promote justice and love in the public life of the church, and that is from the prologue to our code of professional responsibility. And so I thank you all again for your patience in listening to my remarks this evening, for your trust in me, and most of all, I thank you for allowing me to be a member of this great society along with you. Thank you.